Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm well. Now we're we're getting deeper into August now and it's the second of our collection of the highlights of the past year of the TLS podcast. And we've got some really interesting things this week, haven't we? We've, we've kind of got a sort of visionary theme, I think. Yes, yes. With a strong Joycean flavour, shall we say. We certainly have. And I'm delighted that when we were going back listening to things, we happened upon the novelist Audrey McGee talking about James Joyce with you, Lucy, and with Thea Lenarduzzi back in February. And of course, at that point, she had not been long listed for the Booker Prize with her novel, The Colony, had she? She hadn't, but now she has. Which is but wonderful. Now she has. It's such an amazing book. Have you read it? I'm afraid I haven't. You've read everything and I've read nothing. Let's assume that. That's um, absolutely not the case. <laughs> Some things have slipped through my net, but this is not one of them. It's a really striking book. It's all about a painter called Mr. Lloyd. He's referred to continually throughout the book as Mr. Lloyd. And we meet him and he's getting into a curra which is a a very sort of, I suppose, I don't want to say basic because the technology of making is absolutely amazing, but it's essentially a craft made of animal skins stretched over a wooden frame and then made waterproof. And he's getting into one of, I mean, seasickness ensues. We'll just say that's giving nothing away. And he's being rowed to an island, which is only sort of three miles long with a handful of islanders on it in order to paint for the summer. And then he discovers that he has an unwelcome neighbor. And it's sort of about the kind of tensions between, uh, it's off the West coast of Ireland. This is in 1979, when all sorts of IRA and INLA atrocities are taking place that we occasionally hear about. But essentially it's about the relationship between the Islanders, a French linguist and Mr. Lloyd. It's absolutely fascinating. Gripping book. That really does sound fascinating, actually. It sounds wonderful. Who else were you pleased to see on the list? As I say, I really haven't read very many of them, actually, I'm afraid. Delighted that Percival Everett's there. I've only read one of his books, but I thought it was wonderful. And Alan Garner. We talked about Percival Everett, didn't we, with Toby Lichtig. 
Yes, we did. Uh, yeah. In yeah. in our summer summer reading, which we uh, reprised in last week's podcast, and it was just not somebody I'd read, and I have subsequently read the trees, and wow, what a book! What's amazing about it is that it's you think it's going to be a kind of crime novel, almost a thriller, really, but then it basically makes the connection between the crimes that are taking place in this small Mississippi town and the lynching of Emmett Till many, many, many years ago. And the really strange thing is it's also very funny. You wouldn't think that was possible, would you? But mm. it, it really is. It's just, it's an absolutely fabulous book. I really, really loved it. So I was very, very pleased to see that and very delighted to see Claire Keegan and small things like this on the list. I don't know that one either, but I have heard very good things about that, actually. I clearly should read the whole list. I would like to read Treacle Walker by Alan Garner anyway, because I've read lots of his other things about a million years ago when you read them for the first time. The weird stone of Brisingerman and all that kind of thing that we read and when we were. terrifying sort of owl service, which mm. I, could, I could only read once and then I had to hide it because I was so frightened by it. I think in many ways you could describe him as a visionary writer and that's as we said is sort of sort of our theme for this week you talked to Mary Norris didn't you with Thea back in March and you talked about Margaret Atwood and and that's what we're starting off with that must have been an amazing conversation Lucy it was wonderful and actually it's always great to talk to Mary Norris about anything to be honest there's a particularly good bit about Margaret Atwood in the underwear section of the men's clothing department in a big shop, a big store that people might like to listen to. Do you know, one hesitates constantly to bring one's own life. <laughs> but, but God, a gazillion years ago, my mother, who at that time was working in Littlewoods in Oxford, sold Margaret Atwood a pair of tights. No way. There's the connection. There is the connection. <laughs> right. Uh, our podcast listeners, you have the scene set for you. Enjoy Thea Lenarduzzi and Lucy Dallas talking to Mary Norris about Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood has secured for herself a place that few writers could conceive of. Her work is so well known that even those who haven't read a word of it will have breathed it in in one way or another whether because the themes and ideas have so thoroughly suffused the public consciousness, think of the protesters for reproductive rights who dress in blood red hooded robes like Atwood's handmaids, or because they've caught up through some other form, such as the many film and TV adaptations of Atwood's work. As our writer Mary Norris puts it this week in a review of a collection of Atwood's nonfiction, burning questions, essays, and occasional pieces, the novels and short stories like Allen Ginsberg's poetry have become part of the atmosphere cultural fallout. To achieve such a status, to be as prolific and successful as Atwood is, surely requires a method. Or does it? Mary Norris joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Mary, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Well, it's a pleasure to join you. So what do we learn then from these uh, essays and occasional pieces um, about Atwood's method? Well, I noticed right away, and I think anybody who opens the book will notice that many of the essays have a similar beginning. Margaret Atwood has been in great demand at various conferences and um, things like that on all different kinds of topics from pen conferences to conferences for people who are preserving the woods, right? So she often begins an essay. It's a talk and she she begins with addressing the people who are in the room there, in the audience. So she'll say, for instance, I think I have some examples in the piece, you know, greetings. It is a pleasure to be here with you on the occasion of, um, and then she'll mention the person who is, um, who is being honored by this talk, uh, Belle Van Zylen or somebody that we perhaps don't know who is. And she might go on for a little bit to say that she knows who this person is and try to make a connection with her. But then she'll say, and now I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about this, this, and this in this order. And she does this so often that I recognized the writing instruction that we're often given as um, young people in composition classes 
tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you've said. <laughs> she is just a master of that and makes it look like very good advice, I have to say. Mm, and you, you give a, a wonderful image of her um, in action, saying that she narrates her work like a dressmaker with pins in her mouth, chatting while she does a fitting. Yes, it's kind of chatty and casual, but she knows just exactly what she's doing, you know. Um, and I, I began to notice, because I've been in one of her audiences, I've been in her audience a couple of times, in fact, and she's very warm. She engenders a lot of warmth among the audience. And I think that one of the ways she carries that over into the printed talks is by invoking the audience that she was speaking directly to. Mm. No, it's a direct connection mm. with the reader. And as you say, I mean, the way she starts these talks, you know, always situating them and acknowledging the person who, is, who has invited her to, to speak on such and such a thing. It, it's another way of, of, of saying, you know, she writes on commission. That is to say, she is uh, a consummate professional. She writes because she has been asked to write on the subject she has been asked to write on. There's no... Um, deep mystery here of, of creation, you know, no myth-making about the writer's life. <laughs> well, I guess not. Um, when I was thinking about it and writing about it, of course, I, I got self-conscious and I realized that I'd been commissioned to write this piece. You know? So that's kind of the way I built the piece was with that in mind that I was imitating mm. Margaret Atwood in a way while I was writing it. Um, and it's also fair to say, I think, that we don't we don't really come to Atwood for the nonfiction. You know, so these essays and, and lectures and, and, and shorts and uh, and so on, they're mostly valuable, I suppose, because they, they return us to the fiction. Is that right? You know, I did. I had not read a lot of Margaret Atwood, her fiction, that is, because I'm not generally attracted to utopian, dystopian fiction. I don't like dystopian fiction at all. Um, I really don't like dystopian reality, though. <laughs> no, welcome. <laughs> well, we have to admit that. Yeah. that seems to be a fact these days. The essays make it clear what a wonderful writer she is when she is on commission, you know, when she's been paid to do something. And when she is just making something up, when she's writing fiction, that is multiplied. The attraction is really multiplied. The Reading the essays did make me want to go back and read the fiction. Mm, and so, I mean, you, you, you've described her um, in your piece as the queen of speculative fiction, which isn't a label that will surprise anyone because I suppose anyone who's followed her over the years knows how strongly she feels about this label. Um, you know, th this collection for, for anyone who might have forgotten the precise details of the fiction offers plenty of evidence for her being uh, precisely that, the queen of speculative fiction. The reason is, is that she, she wants to draw a distinction between um, things that have already begun to exist, things that are already possible that we already hold in our hands um, and those which are pure works of, of, of imagination. So speculative fiction, you're dealing with things that are already in the realms of, of, of reality, of possibility. That's right, isn't it, Lucy? I, I expect this is very much your terrain. Well, I wish I could sound expert on it, but that sounds absolutely like... Um what I've heard her say about The Handmaid's Tale, certainly because she said that she didn't invent any of the things in it. They were all things that had happened at some point somewhere. Mm. It's just that she she might amplify them or, you know, change them somehow or enlarge them. Um, but yes, I think in science fiction, you can, I mean, there's people do it much, much less nowadays, but you can just say, and then they got in the, uh, what's the, a generic word for the machine? It's something like the Zograffire, you know, and then they got in the Zograffire and it, yeah and it transmogrified them. So that's not what she does. <laughs> no, no, no. And I suppose a shiny, there's a shiny example of that in um, Oryx and Crake. Um, so I read that when it came out, which was 2003, and my memory of it was a little bit hazy. So I kind of reminded myself um, of it this weekend, and I'd forgotten quite how prescient it was. Um, it's kind of remarkable, the stuff that she that she captures there. There's, you know, multiplayer games. Uh, one, there's one called Extinctathon porn saturation, bioengineering, pandemics, population politics, the state of universities and humanities and teaching in particular. And Mary, does she reflect on the life that her, her fiction has taken on, this kind of the, the, li the life of its own that it's taken on and, and what, it, what it's been able to tell us about the world in which we live? 
She certainly does. And those are some of the best essays in this collection, I think. She has one on the writing of the Testaments, one on the writing of the Handmaid's Tale. And there's often, there's background on um, the one you just mentioned. And I love that stuff. I love reading about what inspired her to write, the, write these things and how long it took. And then, you know, the, the, the fact that the reality has caught up to them is quite terrifying. Um, I think that Margaret Atwood is an inveterate reader of pieces on science, popular science in the, the things that make it into the newspaper. And I think she also may read some professional journals because she's been onto things a lot sooner than the general public has, you know, this uh, Mm. idea of raising little piggies in order to give them organs that will match the humans. It's just this, this is, um, of course, human life is precious um, and good for those people who have pig livers and kidneys and things. But I always think about the animals themselves. And I think Margaret Atwood does too, the little farms where they're make or laboratories, I guess they are, where they're raising sacrificial pigs, you know, I think it's so sad. Mm. She's clearly a, a very sensitive, a very sensitive being, I suppose, a part of a part of the world in which she lives. She she observes and she she sometimes amplifies uh, or often amplifies, uh, as as we said, things that are already within the bounds of of possibility. Um, the Handmaid's Tale is probably the most famous example of that. Um, you you make the very bold confession, I, I think. Um, but you haven't read it and and it, you seem to have you, you don't have any desire to do you because presumably you feel you know it so so well so intimately or already because it has been so absorbed into the culture yes um i think now i might read it just to see how she does it you know it's it's a story that of course gives everyone the chills or at least it gives women the chills and and i now have seen a movie version of it so I know how it ends and <laughs> how it begins <laughs> but I would actually like to look at the prose I confess I would like to look back at that see how she did it mm. you know mm. you, you point out that um, and I had no idea about this and it's really interesting it's made me want to go and uh, find it but that it was reviewed in, in when it came out in 1985 in the New York Times by Mary McCarthy Right. Oh, that could have been such a career boost, right? Alas. Um, <laughs> and but she panned it. She didn't like it. Yeah. And then it turned out that um, Atwood found out years and years later that the person who had assigned the book to Mary McCarthy did not know that Mary McCarthy had recently had a stroke. So the review was a bit incoherent is the word that she uses. But it was also it must have been shattering. You know, this Mm. like a breakthrough book but the times makes mistakes um reviewers have their limitations right president company accepted of course well of course and and at least you know <laughs> at least margaret atwood would be able to say well you know um poor mary mccarthy wasn't very well at the time well so. yeah that was nice perhaps <laughs> she doesn't have to <laughs> take it too too much to heart right and she didn't make the point that mary mccarthy should only have lived to see what happened with this failure of a novel well exactly who i mean no nobody could have imagined that i mean the 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 the, the magnitude of, of of success of this of this novel and then as you, you mentioned earlier uh, the testaments the um the follow-up book so what are atwood's own thoughts on 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 this novel and it's 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 you know it's evolution and and, and afterlife and continuing uh, continuing life. I mean, it, it must be strange to have one's work become so much a part of the atmosphere as you put it. So, you know, so that people will refer to it without even knowing the work itself. She doesn't seem like the sort of person who'd let that get to her head. No, she's. I think she seems very level-headed. Maybe it's being from Canada, maybe it's having really worked hard for many, many, many years that she knows that's what she has to keep doing is keep working. And she obviously keeps abreast of all the developments and likes to see what they're doing with her work. And I hope she's as in, I hope she put in a swimming pool <laughs> <laughs> or bought a nice big house and restored it or, or something, but because she it always amazes me that once a writer has achieved 
that kind of renown and, and had movies made of her books and probably is financially set and doesn't have to write anymore to make a living, that she still writes. She still writes all the time. I think that's so admirable. And I suppose you would hope as well that because, you know, because she's written about how writers need to look after their backs. <laughs> I hope she has put in a swimming pool. Right. <laughs> I've been onto that for a while. I do my back exercises as soon as I get up in the morning. <laughs> Very good practical <laughs> advice from Margaret Atwood. It's also, I think, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that she is, as you say, there's not many writers who reach that level of recognition. And um, there's probably not that many older women who any who are listened to with that amount of mm. attention. So I think it's, um, thank goodness she is writing and, you know, reading everything and having opinions and giving talks and all of that, because um, she doesn't have to, as you say, Mary, no. does she? She could just, she could just go and, 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 and swim in her pool. Uh, but I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's very good that she does because she's pretty fearless, isn't she? Yes, maybe that also is something that comes with age. She seems to me completely fearless. Um, I right after I turned my review in, I discovered that the Times of New York had printed a review and and um, citing some of the same very same sentences I cited. Their reviewer gave it a pan. I don't know why they seem to like that, but um, it's not going to hurt her. You know, she's mm -hmm. she's bigger than that critic, which is fabulous. I think yeah. it's fabulous. I've seen her, um, I've seen her talk a number of times and she seems to, I mean, this people say this sort of thing all the time, but in her case it's true. She really does seem to cast a spell over people. Um huh. she she, you know, she sniffs and the whole room is just you could hear a pinfall. <laughs> I think if if we were at a different age, she would be burned as a witch, you know. <laughs> Precisely because of that fearlessness. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. That doesn't sound like a compliment, yeah. but I, I, I absolutely <laughs> yeah. take it that it is. <laughs> it, it's meant as a compliment, right. <laughs> um, so tell us, Mary, about your own first time reading Atwood. Um, because, uh, you, I mean, you, you, can, you, can you recall those, those first impressions? Well, yes. I read um, years ago on the copy desk at The New Yorker, I was given a short story by her to copy edit. It was called Stone Mattress. Mm -hmm. And I was delighted to come upon the origins of that story in a very short essay in Burning Questions. It was um, not, not speculative fiction. It was a good old fashioned murder mystery. Uh, just a short piece and about a woman who uh, like, call her a serial widow, like the Black Widow, who is on a cruise in uh, the Arctic and learns about these things, stromatolites, which are this formation of like pillowy looking stone. And it occurs, it occurred to Margaret Atwood, I discovered in the book that in the in burning questions in her essay that it occurred to her right away that one of those would make a wonderful murder weapon. And so she and her husband developed a story where the a widow would get away with murder on a cruise ship where she, you know, leaves somebody behind um, who has been bashed over the head, I think. <laughs> anyway, it sounds almost Agatha Christie like. Yeah, it, well, <laughs> reading this, what I saw in this story, very short piece, um, what a good storyteller she is, how she just works it all out. And you know, I was quite enthralled with this story and it did convert me. There are so many things to read though. And she herself has produced so much. And what, one, of, one of the things that comes across in that story, I remember reading it again when it, when it came out. Um, uh -huh. And it, it's the wickedness, isn't it? There's a, there's, a, there's a wickedness, a kind of glinting eyed wickedness. Yes, mischief. Yes. Yes, that is, that is one of the delights of her, I think. It's just so, um, what's the word? It's kind of catching. Something contagious about the prose that it does draw you in and mm. you're in the writer's world. So what writers and works by others feature here? She writes about her own work, but she also nods to or, or, or you know, engages deeply with um, 
with some of the people who have influenced her, I think. Well, one thing that she has been doing for years, um, I went out and got another uh, book of hers, I confess, <laughs> went out and got another book of her nonfiction, because this is the third collection, big collection of nonfiction by her, and I wondered what else she'd written about. So I got hold of Second Words, which is her critical prose from 1960 to 1982. And you can see between 1982 and 2004, there was probably another book in there. But she has been a wonderful promoter of her fellow Canadians. She sees it as, I think, her mission to make Canada and writers from Canada more visible. So a lot of the writers that she writes about are her fellow Canadians. She has a wonderful piece in Burning Questions on Alice Munro. And, you know, it's very, I think it's very generous of her because, you know, maybe I, well, I am small-minded and catty and provincial and <laughs> things. So I would have been jealous. I would have been very envious of Alice Munro if I were the other Canadian woman writer, you know, the one who didn't win the Nobel. She's won so many other things. But her essay on Alice Munro is just full of sisterhood and pride and generosity. And it's really wonderful. Mm. The collection spans, uh, as you said, 2004 to 2021, which is it was quite a chunk of time. And it's also, you know, in that time, she became famous in a way that such a small number of, of writers, especially living writers, um, does. Has that changed anything, do you think, in, in her tone and the way that she uh, talks about the work or, or conceives of it or, or thinks about her role as a writer? Well, I don't think so. I think this habit she had of writing, um, of responding to commissions from early on, you know, just to make the money, that is something that I think has stuck with her and that she does very much the same way. And I think she still lends a hand to other writers She's somebody who I think kind of tries to share the wealth in a way rather than, you know, lock herself up with her millions. Yeah, she has, she's on a level with Stephen King, right? Who is another of the writers that she writes about and mm. whom she admires. Mm. Well, I mean, she sounds like an all round good thing, <laughs> which we suspected, I think, before, before you reviewed this, uh, this, this this collection for us but you, you've confirmed it to us now I think oh good well, <laughs> I came to it open-minded and um I was not disappointed you know I had had these few encounters with her in real life with and I count copy editing the story the stone mattress <laughs> um and I was very impressed with the range that she has in the collection of essays, you know, that she'll, she seems like willing to tackle anything. Mm. And, and really willing to, to work as, as, as I think we've probably made clear, she's a real worker. And you, um, one of the, one of the earliest um, uh, encounters that you did have with her kind of, kind of gives us an image of, of that, doesn't it? Of her sitting at a table working waiting and working and hoping yes and just putting in the hours yes well you know I think I got the impression from some of these pieces when she's on her way to give a talk I did get the impression that she writes on airplanes <laughs> <laughs> I read somewhere that she carries two pencils um an extra one in case the point on the first one wears down or breaks and that she carries these pencils when she gets on an airplane and I could really see her scribbling on the um, tabletop in her seat, deciding what she's going to tell these people when she gets there, you know, maybe getting, a, mm. getting in fact, the outline of it um, by mm. being very direct, saying, this is what I'm going to talk about it, this thing, and then letting it come out. Can you just paint a picture for us then on just a, a parting note there of the first time you saw her uh, in, in the flesh? Um, it was in a department store. Oh, <laughs> That picture of her in the department store when she was selling her very first book was called The Edible Woman. Um, she described that at a, a book sales conference in Albuquerque, where she was speaking at a breakfast meeting to authors and sellers of books, independent booksellers mostly. And she just described her first 
publicity stunt, <laughs> I guess you would call it, which was selling books, signing books in the men's underwear department of a Canadian department store in, in the West, I think, in Alberta. And um, she just sat there next, next to the escalator at a little table while the men came in looking, shopping for socks and jockey shorts. <laughs> and the title, she said, scared them away, the title of The Edible Woman. And um, she did sell two books, but how brave. <laughs> And at this conference, she was actually reminiscing with, I think, the person who either edited that first collection or who was her publicity person at the publisher who set that up for her, her very first professional appearance as a writer. So she had certainly come a long way. That's very forgiving to still share a stage with the person who made you sit in the men's underwear department with your book, <laughs> The Edible Woman, isn't it? I think mm. we can add forgiving to her list of virtues. <laughs> so in a way, I suppose she always feels like she's in that men's underwear department. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and I just think there's something so wonderful about now being able to picture her um, sitting in that men's underwear department by the escalator, waiting to sell those two books. And presumably at the end of the day, leaving feeling like she'd accomplished something I hope she did I'm sure she did but to be able to picture that version of her alongside the one that we we now know she 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 is where she can hush a room of thousands um with a sneeze um so Mary Norris thanks very much for um for bringing us Margaret Atwood then and Margaret Atwood now thanks for talking to us well thank you it's been a pleasure Still to come on the show, Audrey McGee on James Joyce with a little bit of Paul Muldoon as well. And if you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
This week, we're celebrating 100 years since the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. And to mark the occasion, we're returning to Joyce's work with a specific brief. To explore how Joyce saw it as an opportunity to tackle, as he had before, but now with especially great force, the Irish relationship with language and nationalism. A relationship which has not exactly cooled, though it has changed over the past century. Audrey McGee, whose own novel, The Colony, concerned with Irish language and place and belonging and many other themes Joyce grappled with too, is published this same historic week. So no pressure at all there. Uh, And she has written on the topic for us and joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Audrey. Hello. Hi, a pleasure to be with you. Lovely to have you on. In your essay, we first meet Joyce in a strictly uh, bureaucratic capacity. He's recorded by his father uh, in the census of March 35. 1st, 1901, and he's noted as James, 19 years old, male, Roman Catholic, unmarried, a student, and a speaker of Irish and English. And it's that last bit that we're going to dig into now. Uh, It's a flat and simple line to summarise and apparently settle an incredibly tricky matter, isn't it? And one that remains a tricky matter, you know, and it it was a tricky matter for Joyce throughout his life. Um, And you can trace that through his writing. You know, it's a difficult question. It's a very difficult question. And it was one he, at the time when he, when he was cited in the census as being a speaker of English and Irish, he was actually learning Irish, but he wasn't an Irish speaker. And his house was not a bilingual house. He was, his house was fully English speaking. Um, his education, firstly with the Jesuits and then later with, at university level with um, University College in Dublin was all done through English. But there was a revival movement going on headed, as you know, by um, Yeats and Singh and Lady Gregory. Um, And, you know, it was it was such a strong movement because it was the big artistic movement of the time. But it was all based around language and Irishness and the expression of Irishness through the Irish language. And Joyce did not have the Irish language. So as a student, he took Irish lessons and he joined Conrina Gaelga, which was the Gaelic League, and they were organizing lessons um, for English speakers around the country, but was particularly strong in Dublin. And, and Joyce struggled with this because he was obviously hugely fascinated by language. Language was his, his medium, his passion. But language in Ireland was, is, is such a political issue. You know, it's very hard to separate Irish from politics, and it was particularly hard back then because it was such a a marker of your relationship with the national movement and the revivalist movement and the literary revival. So he found himself between a rock and a hard place because he had no interest in this nationalist fervor. It was not him. It was not what he wanted to be. But yet the great writer of Yeats and saying they were all part of this so so you know he was he was in quite a quite a tricky position it's interesting that his dad who who was in charge of filling in the details on the census sort of made the decision to to record him in that way it's almost like he was choosing to make a statement on his behalf about about where they sat in 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 the politics of of the things and it's kind of interesting to to think about the language by this point had sort of been co-opted twice I mean first by the British colonizers who disparaged it um you know, calling it, I think you say, the useless tongue of illiterate peasants. Uh, and then it was co-opted again to fight on the other side, as you say, by uh, the Irish revivalists. So he couldn't, I mean, Joyce had no, it was, it was obviously going to be very difficult for him to see it apart from, apart from all of that. But both of those instances are about a kind of a moving backwards, aren't they? It's a sort of a return to a previous time for better or for worse. Is that what Joyce's main objection to learning it was, do you think? Well, I, I wouldn't say Joyce's father wrote that without Joyce's input. You know, right. so I, I would say Joyce was involved in that um, decision to write himself as bilingual because John Joyce wrote himself as wrote down himself as an English speaker. So I wouldn't say that it was foisted upon him. I, my impression of it all or understanding of it all or reading of it all would be that this was, you know, Joyce himself. Mm-hmm. Um, positioning himself yeah positioning himself and then then finding that he didn't enjoy this position that he had that he had found himself in Mm. um then just 
really abandoned the whole thing and declared in, in Stephen Hero that English is the language for the continent. And he was off. He was gone. You know. And so how, how so, did his how did his how did his heading off? How did his 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 move abroad shift things for him, do you think? Well, he he you know, the wonderful thing for Joyce when he left was that he became immersed in so many different languages, you know, that it wasn't just a binary choice of Irish or English or, you know, is it one or the other? There were so many, you know, so he could, when he was in Trieste, he could learn formal Italian while speaking the Triestine um, dialect at home. And, and then he also learned German and he had French. Um, but he was able to completely immerse himself to the point of learning Norwegian so that he could read Ibsen in its original, in its original writing, read Ibsen in his original language. So he just had a, he feasted on these languages on the continent and flitted from one to the other then, you know, and that, and that fed so totally into his writing because it was this melange of all these words, of all these origins and nuances and meaning and interpretation. So it was, he had a field day with it all, um, but at the back of it all was this relationship with the, the mother tongue of any Irish person. Even if you're not an Irish speaker, it was, it was the mother tongue of your country. Um, and so, I mean, so he, he was sort of trying to run away from having to tackle that, that dilemma, wasn't he, you say, of keeping well, I, or shedding I, that language? Yeah, completely, because by being on the continent, he didn't have to engage with it. It wasn't mm. there in front of him. He could he could flee the Irish speakers or the people who thought that the future of Ireland was through the Irish language. Um, being on the continent allowed him a completely separate identity that was free of that. And he saw himself as a Parnellite and a European, not as a kind of backward-looking, romantic, Irish-speaking Islander. You know, he saw him very, much, very, sorry, he saw himself very much as a European, as a forward-thinking modernist, um, and sorry. didn't want to look backwards. But it's not always that simple. And language is not a simple space, especially not for somebody like Joyce. A lot of the time, he mocks the language. You know, a lot of the time, he, he's almost mocking in his use of it because he's not quite comfortable with it, but he doesn't leave it behind either. And it's interesting that when he when he fled Ireland, and I mean, not directly, but partly to, to, to flee this, this dilemma, um, he, he wound up going to Trieste, a place uh, which is a meeting point of languages and that has this, this, this language of its own. And, and he, you know, he was in Italy, a country where this, this exact uh, linguistic political tension is, was then and is in, is still incredibly fraught. So it must have, in a way, as well as giving him respite from the dilemma, it will have kept it ever present and probably just helped him to find new ways of, of approaching it. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can give us a taste of, of how all of this, this kind of linguistic uh, wrestling played out in, in his writing pre-Ulysses, um, perhaps, which we'll come to in a moment, because it did on and on, back and forth. And there's a scene you mentioned in particular in, in Dubliners. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a beautiful scene there in Eveline um, or Eveline um, with Dubliners from 1914, where um, the old woman is dying in the bed and she's, it's, she's senile. She's, you know, she's really kind of dying quite slowly, but she's muttering and she's, she's saying, Theravaun, Seraun, Theravaun, Seraun, and this goes on and on. Um, and this chant, and it's, you know, on the surface of it, it's nonsense. You know, what is this? This is a, a dying old woman muttering. But, you know, Joyce never just wrote something down for the sake of it. Everything in Joyce has meaning. And, you know, Joyce and scholars have long debated, it, what is this meaning? Is there a meaning? Some people have said it's, it's a nonsense. It just means it's the, it's the dying language. But others have, have found things like Thuravaun, Siraun, um, I have been there, you, you should go there, which is kind of, it'd be like a, the phrase crystallizing this, the story of Evelyn who is bound to live as her mother did. You know, you, you will live as I did on this small island, you will not leave. You know, Thuravaun, Siraun, you know, I have been there, you should go there. You know, so it's, it's 
was he saying that or was it, as other people would say, really just gibberish nonsense of a, of a dying woman just as the language was dying? That's an interesting one. But further on in the same collection of stories in the dead, um, there's that really, really great scene between um, Gabriel Conroy and Molly Ivers. And Molly Ivers, with a very Protestant surname, is an ardent supporter of the Gaelic League and the Irish language. And um, she is um, challenging Gabriel Conroy because Gabriel Conroy is saying that he's going to go and travel to France and Belgium. And she's saying, well, why, why are you going to France and Belgium? You should be going to, your, to the Aran Islands. And he's saying, well, no, I want to go and practice my language. She said, well, you know, use, you have your own language. And, you know, he then says, Irish is not my language. But then he goes to bed that night and he's thinking it over and over and over. And by the end of it, he's saying that he will travel westwards. Mm. That he will, he will go back to the Irish language. So, you know, Joyce is already conflicted because on the one hand, he's saying, you know, um, I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of here. But then when he's gone, he starts to debate within through his characters as to whether or not he should be back there learning the language. Should I be back in the West learning the learning Irish and keeping Irish alive? Mm. Um, so it's a complicated, difficult space that he's inhabiting and he's inhabiting it because of his love of language. But the politics around the language in Ireland as exactly as you say, he saw echoed then in, in Italy and Trieste and in parts of France too, you would see all this politics around, around small languages struggling to survive against these bigger, more formalized, structured languages. And, and this, this uh, linguistic space that he set himself in and you know, he started to inhabit in, in Dubliners, um, he, he extends that, he, he enriches it, he goes deeper and deeper in, in Ulysses, which itself started as, didn't it start as a, a discarded chapter of, of, of Dubliners? But tell us, tell us about how the dilemma sort of bubbles up again and again in Ulysses itself. So in, in Ulysses, quite, in, you know, in the first, um, in the first part of Ulysses, we have um, that wonderful, wonderful scene in Telemachus, where Haynes, um, the Englishman who speaks Irish, um, and he's, He's in the tower with, um, and he's in the tower, and he's speaking. He's speaking Irish to the to the woman who delivers the milk. I don't know if you remember this scene, but it's the most glorious scene because she comes in with the milk. She's 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 carrying the, these this big jug of milk from which she pours, and he starts to speak to her in Irish, and she's totally bewildered. She's like, well, "What is this man saying? Is he speaking French? Who is he? You know?" <laughs> and it's just this kind of, you know, he he just creates this incredible dilemma where this Englishman comes to Ireland to save Irish, but really finds himself in this country where they're looking at him bewildered because it's like, what in God's name is he saying? You know, what language is he speaking? And she's doing her best. And she says, oh, you know, yeah, it's a lovely language for those who speak it. I, I gather it's, it's, it's wonderful, you know, but, but he creates this bewilderment among the the speakers in Dublin, like, what is this earnest Englishman talking about? You know, and it's just, it's so beautifully done and beautifully rendered. And then in the Cyclops episode, it's, he takes it further where he satirizes Michael Cusack, who's the um, founder of the Gaelic Athletic Association, who's sitting in, in the pub and he's downing pints and he's spouting on and on about the marvels of Ireland and everything else. And you know, Joyce just parodies this whole thing, this exclusive bigoted interpretation of Ireland that he just can't abide. It's the one thing about Ireland that he can't, he just can't take it. And that episode, that's not only is, is, is he proud of Ireland, that turns into sort of xenophobia, doesn't it? And hatred of everybody else. Yes, completely. It's, it's bigoted, it's xenophobic, it's just, it's isolated and it's isolationism. And that was not Joyce. And that's what he really wanted principal reasons why he fled um, but they kept coming back to you know this this interpretation of Irishness and the language that is embedded in that interpretation of Irishness um, so you know he did struggle all the time to unpick those two but 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 he still saw merit in the language and he still saw merit in what had happened to the language because of colonialism, because of the British presence. 
there's a really interesting part in Aeolus where he recreates the speech given in Dublin by John Francis Taylor in 1901 on the revival of the Irish language. And this was a really famous speech. And Taylor was a, a barrister, but really a kind of a very difficult character. And he would wander around the city giving speeches in all these different places, but had a huge following for those who liked him and then, but then was also equally despised, you know? So, but Joyce had a huge amount of time for this particular speech that he gave because he likened the British to the Egyptian high priests who wanted the enslaved Hebrews to abandon the language and the culture. And then Moses came down in this speech that Taylor gave and brought them to the, to the promised land. And, you know, this is this, this kind of evocation of, well, why, why don't we have our promised land? Or where is our promised land? What is this promised land? But in, in Ulysses, Joyce recreates this speech to, through Professor McHugh, and it's Professor, we must note, with a small p, which is very important. Um, and it's in the newsroom of the Telegraph. And it's actually the only section of Ulysses that Joyce recorded. And he did so at really at the kind of, at the behest of, of Sylvia Beach, who took him to a recording studio in the outskirts of Paris in 1924. And Sylvia Beach, as you know, was his publisher and the owner of Shakespeare and Co. And she realized that, you know, it was a really precious thing to get him, to get his voice reading. And, and she said, look, let's go. Um, and she organized everything. And this was the piece he chose. And he said he chose it because it was declaratory. He also recorded from Finnegan's Wake on the same day. And it's, they're beautiful recordings. I, have you heard them? I've heard, I've heard, yeah, I've heard, and I have heard a bit of the Ulysses one. And the thing I have to say that I find surprising across time is his accent in, in that he sounds quite English. Yeah. He doesn't, he sounds quite, almost upper class English. But I think that's a thing to do with yeah. With, yeah. with time as, as well. He's been away and, and he was a showman too, you know. I mean, he did all his mm. acting down in, down in, you know, he used to perform down in, in Zurich. He had a little theatre mm. thing. So I suppose at the time, if you went on stage and you performed, it was quite normal to adopt a kind of version of Englishness. It's, it's really worth listening to. It's, it's so evocative. Because he chose that, I mean, Beach would argue that um, it was his crystallization of what Ulysses was about, which was this kind of still the Parnellite kind of view of an independent Ireland, free free of not only Britain, but also of, of Rome. How are things on this point now in Ireland? I mean, I know that, uh, like, again, like in Italy, regional and original, if you like, languages have been hugely supported by uh, the European Union and so we're still very much caught up in, in the politics of identity and perhaps for that reason things seem to have developed in almost the opposite direction to what one might have predicted in the days when the British were mocking Irish speakers for being uh, peasants. Can you tell us how, how things sit now? Yeah it's a really interesting point because um, at the beginning of this year Irish became an official language of the European Union which is, which is really a, a very interesting milestone um, but there we're kind of on an island now where there are two two versions of Irish. There's the East Coast Irish, and this is there are actually numerically more people speaking Irish now on the East Coast than there are on the West Coast. Um, mm. So basically, on the East Coast now, we we've we've had this growth and growth and growth of the Gaelskull, which are the Irish schools for. Um, for primary and secondary school students, so they've been a huge success. Um, but there, the children are learning Irish as a second language. Um, it's not. It's not in most cases. Obviously, there are some cases where it's it's a it's a mother tongue. But in most cases, in a lot of cases, the vast majority of people are speaking English at home, but Irish in school. And that's got a huge amount of support from government, and those schools are a huge, huge. Um, huge success story um, and that is that is generating a, a new interest in the language but it's a it's Irish as a second language now it's going to do it's because it's now an official language of the European Union these young people who are learning this language have a great future you know within Europe as you know working within Irish but what's really interesting is on the west coast um, it's still 
really a dwindling language. It's still struggling with survival. And this is where the narrative of language of place, you know, this is the heartbeat of the original language is still there. And it's, I use a, I use a, a Gaeltacht language in the book, in the colony. Um, and it's, it's a part of, it's a language spoken now by only 160 people in the Northwest coast of Mayo. It's a coastal area, really, really rural, tiny area. Um, but only 160 people are speaking that language. How did you get to know it? Did you grow up with Irish speakers around you and your family? No, not at all. No, actually, well, interesting. My mother um, went to school through Irish, but then went to, had to really basically abandon it all when she went to college because then everything was in English. Mm. So she then lost all her Irish. Um, so no, I didn't grow up with Irish at all. Um, but I was what I call myself a closet peg reader. So peg was this this um, this book we did at school, which was the story of an island woman, an old island woman. And it was, oh, you know, it was just, oh, ter- the harshness of life in the island and how terrible life is. And, you know, and her children were always falling off the cliff and all oh, this terrible thing happened. And that and I loved this book. And I mean, I just loved this book. But the last thing you could ad- admit to loving was this book you were dead meat if you if you said you like this book as a secondary school student you were finished you know but I just had a really strong bond with this book even though I wasn't an Irish speaker I just 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 evoked so much for me um, well, that was where it started for you then that's where it started for me I think but you know not unlike Joyce I I had a really conflicting relationship with it and I took on European languages. I was a, a German and French speaker. I too fled to the continent and mm. um, studied, immersed myself in French and Europe, French and German literature and European, in the whole European way and loved it, absolutely loved it. But I just find myself coming back full circle to this mother tongue, you know, and mm. it's really interesting to, to see and, and I obviously was working in isolation, but as I come out of my little bubble, it's it's really fascinating to see that there is definitely a shift among writers now, and particularly among younger writers like Dirini Griefa and um, Malcolm Mangan, who are just be- who are writing in bilingual texts, you know. And, and mm. Dirini Griefa has done a really interesting thing where she has written. She's, she literally has one page of Irish and one page of English. Um, so, and, and then there are films now being produced in Irish. But what's interesting is that, you know, I suppose we've had 20 years of, of non-conflict in the North since 1998, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so there's been a space for the language actually to be removed from politics. And I think it's really interesting to see the younger generations who have who those who decide to engage with Irish have a much more positive relationship with it. Mm. So I'm really interested to watch that. Um, now it's obviously different in the North where we still have conflict over language. We still have rows between um, unionism and nationalism over the Irish Language Act. And I think it's very interesting because it's what, uh, there's a, a wonderful book on Algerian, um, language conflict in Algeria by Mohammed Benraba. And he calls um, he calls it the use of languages as a proxy for conflict. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, that phrase for obvious reasons really struck with me, really stuck with me, sorry. Um, but really, you know, that's where we're, we're kind of still in that in the North, but yeah, down South there's something else going on. Now, whether mm-hmm. it's lasting and whether it's enduring and whether we can, whether we reach a point where we blend what's happening on the East Coast with what's happening on the West, I don't know, time will tell, but I, I find it a very interesting space, you know, mm. so, um, because I think it has been stripped back and stripped away from politics to be just about the language, which is, you know, as a linguist, is a thrilling place for any language. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a linguistic detail, which probably is quite fitting given everything we've been talking about. But whether we whether we think of it, whether we call it a revival or or a new chapter um, entirely, it seems you're leaning more towards the latter. I think. 
Yeah, I think so, because I think what, what's really interesting is when you look at the loss of language in Ireland, we went from being monolingual Irish to bilingual to almost monolingual English. And now are we pushing back towards a state of bilingualism? We'll never obviously be monolingual again. That, that's, you know, that's, that's not. But, but is, are, is there a possibility of a point of bilingualism for some people? It's, it's just an interesting concept. Mm. Um, are, we, are we kind of pushing back the tide or not? Time will tell. Well, we'll have to keep watching uh, and, and listening. Audrey McGee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. the risk of course of putting off some readers by suggesting that uh, one's involved in some great crossword puzzle as mm. one embarks on a reading of Joyce and that would be unfortunate. Um, I certainly don't want to suggest that it's really a book for those who might be interested in crossword puzzles though there is that in it. It's a book I think that reads much more readily much more easily than many have imagined and I think usually it has to do with the imagination of what the book might be that it might not somehow be for the ordinary person which is a problem. Yes I've always thought that was actually that's something that they've I don't know literary criticism has done a real disservice to it because I think you just got to jump in I think people are frightened of it because as you say there is this idea that you have to be at least kind of professor level to be able to understand it. But I think you just, I mean, I jumped in when I read it first, just in ignorance <laughs> and kind of swam through it and I got some of it and I didn't get lots of it, but I found it kind of wonderful and stimulating. And then if you want to, you can go back and you can do of the work. And, and also because he's such a musical writer, just the same with Finnegan's Wake, though I do not do not pretend to have read Finnegan's Wake. If you read it out loud, it makes much more sense often. Yes, and there are, I mean, there are absolutely wonderful recordings and voices, not least by, uh, by RTE of, the, um, of Ulysses, aren't there, Paul? There are indeed, and that uh, is, is the way to think of it. I actually think of it now more and more as a drama. And certainly there's an RTE recording, Radio Telefisher and the National Broadcaster recording of Ulysses, which brings that to the fore. And it actually is very useful in our, the way we think about the Westland, which was modelled somewhat on Ulysses. I think it's almost uh, best to think of the Westland as a drama also. But mm. as, as you say, I mean, I think the professors, and perhaps including the likes of myself, have been somewhat to blame. Joyce remarked, as you recall, that, you know, he was, in some sense, he was writing so that it, the professors would be busy for a century. Uh, and I think it's an unfortunate aspect of it. And as you say, if you just read it as if you were reading, uh, actually, the novel that came out last week, uh, rather than this huge work of art, I think you're probably better situated. I suspect that for many readers, they come upon a line, and I think the first time I read it, I came upon it myself, this line, ineluctable modality of the visible. And the one time I taught Ulysses, I actually told my students that when they met that line, it's the opening of uh, one of the early-ish chapters uh, or episodes, I said, you know what? Just skip it, go to the next one and keep going. Because I think many have foundered on that particular rock. Well, that's all we have time for this week. We really hope you've enjoyed as much as we have listening to Audrey McGee, Mary Norris and Paul Muldoon. Thank you for listening to the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.